Before we get started with the show today, I want to send a special thank you out to Phyllis Eli. Phyllis submitted a very generous donation of $50 to us, and she also sent us a very nice note that I'm going to read for you. I appreciate your topics and focused discussion. I especially like your attention to the many aspects of being an artist, from professional considerations to the creative process. Thank you. Well, thank you, Phyllis, so much for your donation. If you would like your own shout-out on the Messy Studio Podcast, go to www.messystudiopodcast.com and click the Donate button. You can submit a donation for literally any amount, but if you submit a donation of $30 or more for a single-time donation or a recurring donation of $10 or more a month, we will give you a special thank you on the Messy Studio Podcast, just like Phyllis. So once again, thank you so much, Phyllis, for your donation. Thank you for supporting the show. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening, for sharing the show, and for donating those small amounts as well. Those actually really do add up. Also, I want to warn everyone that the audio quality on this episode is not quite up to my standards. Um, we had technical difficulties with just about everything on this episode and we actually ended up re-recording it and uh, when we re-recorded it we still had more problems and we also had the issue of our connection dropping we uh, we're not sitting in the same room when we record these episodes a lot of times I'm in Wisconsin Rebecca's in New Mexico and because of our connection being dropped uh, several times um, I had to kind of cobble together this episode so there are times when the conversation seems just a little bit chopped up uh, and so that's why is because I'm, I'm having to um, take different parts of conversations where our call was dropped and splice them together. So I, I think it's still a really good episode. It's a really good topic. It's a very important topic. Um, so I hope you can still enjoy it. Uh, but I just want to warn you about those issues. On with the show. Hello and welcome to The Messy Studio with Rebecca Kroll, the podcast at the intersection of art, travel, entrepreneurship, philosophy, and life in general. I am Ross Tickner, Rebecca's audio producer, podcast guru, and her son. On today's episode, we are talking about influence versus copying. No artist is wholly original. We all owe so much to those who came before us for techniques, ideas, theories, and approaches, and we should honor these influences. Each of us references these influences in our own way. Some of us place ourselves firmly in the tradition of a certain approach to art, for example, abstract expressionism, or even as followers of a particular artist, but with our own expression and interpretation. Others are less eager to fit into a category, choosing not to identify with any particular approach and acknowledging a wide range of influences. And unfortunately, there are those on the other end of the spectrum who either deliberately plagiarize another artist's work or use so many of another artist's ideas that they come uncomfortably close to outright copying. In today's episode, we look at the upsides and downsides of influences on our own work and when that line crosses into copying. With me, as always, is Rebecca Kroll. Hello, everyone. This is a complicated topic, and we're going to try to do it justice today and talk about both the healthy and appropriate aspects of influence, as well as the problematic and sometimes even toxic downside of copying and plagiarizing other people's work. Um, I'd like to start with a story about uh, the downside, really. Um, so this is a story about a friend of mine 
who has been dealing with copying by another artist. And this has been a really upsetting experience. And she became aware that someone was copying a lot of different aspects of her work, um, colors, compositions, um, format, even titles. I mean, it was very close. And um, a number of other people had noticed this and contacted my friends, it's not just her own observation. And so she let it go for a little while, hoping things would move on, I guess. And then she decided she had to deal with it. And she made some attempt uh, via email to talk to the artist and tell her what she'd seen and ask her to stop. And the other person um, just really got defensive and never really admitted what she was doing or acknowledged the situation. And at least one other person also contacted this artist to discuss the problem. And it's still going on, you know, it continues to this day. And it's really been an issue for my friend. And um, it is very hard to deal with these things when they come up. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on in the podcast. Um, I would like to start with the more positive aspects of influence. So it's kind of a continuum from, yes, we are influenced by other artists, and that's absolutely fine and healthy and important and expected. And then there's that that other end where it sort of falls off the cliff into something that really isn't good. So um, I have some different points to make about that. I would like to make one uh, note that we there's an aspect of influence that's referred to as appropriation, and we're not going to have time to get into that. Basically, that's uh, using another artist's image or work, usually in the public domain, but not necessarily for conceptual reasons. And you're not making any claim that this is your own work. You're sort of commenting on it or using it in ironic ways. Um, and appropriation is also used for taking aspects of uh, visual language from another culture that has a lot of meaning usually, and just because you like the look of it and just using it in your own way. So I will mention that one again later on. Um, anyway, so a few points about influences. And as I said, we're starting on the more positive end, the healthy end. And the first one is that influences are inevitable <laughs> for artists. I mean, we, we're visual people and we're soaking up what we see. We're sponges. Um, and it's also part of a long tradition of studying art history, studying other art. Uh, even a lot of traditional art programs have students actually copy, you know, famous works of art as a way of understanding how the artist works. And we always have been interested in seeing what other artists have to offer. It's it's um, part of how we educate ourselves, really. And that can include like their techniques. Um, I think we have sort of a, a, an acquisitive <laughs> attitude sometimes when we see other people's work that we like in the sense of um, uh, how did they do that? How could I do this? Is there something here that I could use in my own work? Um, I, I had a gallery director tell me once that he could spot artists as soon as they came into the gallery and started looking at the work in there because they didn't just stand back and admire their inches would be, I mean, I'm sorry, their, their noses would be inches from 
the surface of the work because they're really interested in how it's done. Um, we're also interested in the content of artists' work. Um, what's their story? What's their background? Um, how do they find meaning in their work? And possibly also the more practical aspects of the artist's success. If they're a successful artist, we may be very curious about how they got there and try to learn from them um, how they got their work noticed by other people. Right. And copying is very much a part of learning techniques and, and learning how to produce good art. Uh, most of us have done some amount of uh, uh, outright copying or at least, um, you know, learning from example by studying great masters or studying under a particular mentor. Uh, and that's very much a part of how of the learning process and how that occurs. Absolutely. Um, and there are some very positive aspects to that. Yeah. And it's totally expected and totally, it just is what it is. It's part of what we do. Um, and I guess the next point I wanted to make, though, is that the best influences that we have are a mixture of these things. It's not just taking from one source, but I mentioned that we're sponges and it's what happens when that sponge has mopped up a whole lot of stuff and then it's squeezed out. <laughs> and so everything it's mopped up has mingled and mixed and um, interacted. And that really creates a, an original and personal outcome. You, you take bits and pieces here and there of things that have spoken to you. And um, these things change over time. You know, over a lifetime, we've probably already built up quite a few and there may be something that's more prominent at the moment but everything that you've paid attention to and absorbed is somewhere in there and it it gradually builds up into a very personal language or personal expression and this can include not just other artists but the other things that you're interested in and ideas that you think about and all these things um add up to your personal voice, which is something you know, we've discussed in other podcasts. And very often the sources of that personal voice, a part of those sources are other artists. And um, like I said, changes over time. I, I think about my own very long list over time. And I remember back in high school, I liked looking at copies of illustrated medieval manuscripts. <laughs> I don't think that's a typical high school obsession, but <laughs> I liked it. And I think what what those uh, illuminated manuscripts were showing me was great detail and the beauty of um, surface. And you know, I moved on to many other different painters. Um, I had my Georgia O'Keeffe phase, you know, <laughs> had times when I was looking at many different people, abstract expressionists, um, minimalists like Agnes Martin came a bit later, and even people outside of the painting field, um, printmakers, Mauricio Lazansky was one, um, sculptors, Brancusi, um, Richard Serra. So, you know, not necessarily just painters. And, and then, as I mentioned, the interest in other fields, like for me, archaeology, uh, recently poetry, these things are all part of the mixture. And I think the more that you have, the more that you pay attention to, it's impossible to just come out with one um, 
thing that looks like a copy of someone else, you know, <laughs> it becomes a very personal process. Um, so the last thing I want to say in the in the positive realm about influences, I guess it's a bit of a caution, really, is to be aware aware of your attitude towards the the people, the artists that influence you, and try to be objective, not overly swayed by them. I think the best attitude is one of just sort of interest you're observing. Um, and this keeps the influence from being too overpowering. You keep a little distance there, um, not idolize them, um, realize that there are people who have struggled to get where they are, uh, and also that every artist has a range of works, and it's not all fabulous. <laughs> so picking and choosing, and like I said, just sort of stepping back a bit from it. Another interesting approach to considering this artist that you're admiring as a person, uh, kind of imagining what you would talk about with them. And, and if if influences are like a conversation, which I think is good, when it's your turn in the conversation, you you add something, right? You bring something to it. So considering your influences as someone that you're in conversation with, rather than that that person is doing all the talking. And you know that their experience cannot really be yours. and But you want to hear about it, you want to learn about it, and then uh, comment for your own from your own perspective. Um, going into their ideas, both their visual ideas and their other ideas. And, you know, how does it relate to you? Can you add something? Are there things that they think about and do that don't relate to you? And those things you can say, no, that's interesting, but that's not influencing me. Um, I have an example from my own life, which is the work of Tapias, a Spanish artist, and I really like his work and admire it and am influenced by it to some extent. And I think what was very interesting for me was to see his work in uh, in his home city of Barcelona. And there's a foundation there which has a whole lot of his work. And I saw it in such a different way. And I said, oh, he is painting about this gritty city that he lives in. <laughs> you know, It's very urban painting. And I didn't really know that until I saw it there. And so, although I admire his use of texture, I recognize it now as my not not that related to what I do in a way because I'm much more influenced by wild landscape. And yet, I appreciate it, and I'm sure it is in there somewhere that the way he uses bold textures. So that's just an example of seeing somebody in their context and, and trying to understand them um, better. You know, art can be visual alone, but just being attracted to the look of somebody's work can lead to copying. You know, if you don't really understand the origins of it and the person's development, um, we just say, oh, I like the way that looks, so I'm going to make that look appear in my own work. It's taken out of context, and right, and it's a very superficial understanding of the work. It doesn't really get to what's behind the uh, the the superficial appearance of say. It those seems textures. like a path to copying if you don't see the bigger picture, right? 
Yeah. Well, and the and the work that will result from being only influenced by those superficial uh, appearances uh, is is going to be superficial in nature, and it's not going to be very yeah. high quality work. Um, there's that there's that urge to collect images that we like, and usually it is just for their superficial appearance, and you know. Good art is not superficial, even in its visual aspects, so it's fine to collect it. Uh, People do this on Pinterest, for example. But getting back to that idea of the mixture and the context, uh, what is the context of this imagery? Who made it? Why did they make it? And um, also just the meaning of it. I, I I think this is where I would want to say a little bit more about appropriation from other cultures because this is kind of widespread and um, I would use the example of Aboriginal art uh, from Australia, which consists of small little dots of color. The the art that comes from that culture is extremely meaningful and spiritual. Basically, these are maps of a spiritual landscape. And but oh, it's really attractive, like these little colored dots, you know. And you see this in other people's work, just sort of taking the look of it, and it it bothers me on some level because I think that it is uh, the bad side of just taking something that you don't really get and you like the way it looks. And people do this with a lot of things like petroglyphs. I mean. Uh, we see this in the Southwest a lot, people using petroglyph images that come from a place of, you know, really deep meaning. We may not know what it is because often these are very ancient, but it still seems wrong to me somehow to just, oh, I like the look of that thing, so I'm just going to take it uh, from, you know, lifting it out of another culture. So that's my little speech about cultural appropriation, (laughs) but uh, it fits in here because it's just... That just sort of, yeah, I like the way it looks. Um, So I guess those are all aspects of, you know, they can be at least very positive aspects of influence and making the effort to understand your influences and how they can best be incorporated in your own work and paying attention to them. You know, what are you interested in? What does attract you? Are there common denominators of these things that attract you? And I think we want to spend at least part of the podcast, though, on the downside (laughs) Uh, when there's um, too much influence or too much from one source. It's out of balance. You're, You're too heavily influenced by something. And I'd like to start out from the point of view of you as an artist, because sometimes we look at our own work and worry that it looks too much like someone else's, and we know it does. And this um, bothers us, and what do we do about it? Um, it? It's sort of tricky because sometimes this happens out of, out of your own, from your own path. You know, you arrive at a place in your work that someone points out to you, hey, that looks a lot like so-and-so's work. (laughs) It's possible you've never seen so-and-so's work. Um, I remember this happened to me in graduate school. An instructor said, oh, you must have been looking at the work of 
this guy Mata. And I said, who's that? <laughs> you know, I'd never heard of it. When I went and looked at this guy's work, yeah, I could see similarities um, the way I was working. And I was kind of floored by that. Uh, somebody I'd never really seen. In later years, sometimes people would say, oh, your work is so much like Rothko. And I'd think, well, I don't really see the connection. I mean, I guess I like Rothko, but I've never been, I've never felt personally that he was a huge influence. So sometimes these are things other people see. You don't recognize it. Uh, sometimes once they point it out, you do see it. And maybe it bothers you a little bit. So you have kind of a choice there. You can either say, I'm not going to worry about it because I got there on my own. Or you, it might bother you and you think, okay, how can I you know, push my work in a, in a way that is um, also personal and acceptable to myself and interesting, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to diverge that path. And um, so that, that's a situation where you're kind of sort of unaware of things. It's brought to your attention. Okay, what do I do about it? But maybe you do acknowledge it. You know it. And in any case, maybe you need a clean break from this path that is taking you too much in someone else's direction. And you can experiment around, try things that are very different for you and things that call to you that are not part of what you're doing that's turning out like somebody else's work. And maybe once you explore another direction, you can come back and it will have changed. You will have brought something new into it. And part of this, the reason I bring this up is because this happens with workshops, right? You mentioned earlier, uh, we study with people, right? We, we do learn from instructors, um, whether in workshops or in college, and we feel their influence pretty strongly. Um, I teach workshops. I see this among my students. And I guess I just want to say um, that, in my opinion, <laughs> uh, you shouldn't take a workshop to learn to make what the instructor makes. I mean, to basically produce work that looks like theirs, but you should take it to learn what what they have to offer that you can bring into your own work and your own ideas. And when I see my own students' work that is close to mine, I just feel a basic trust that if they're serious about their work, uh, they are going to bring their own ideas into it over time. And there's, there's usually a phase following a workshop, and this can go on for a while, in, in which the work looks like the instructors. And I'm not just speaking for myself. I see it with a lot of different instructors. Uh, often we can look at the work of people who have taken a number of workshops from a particular artist and say, mm, yeah, looks like they've been studying with so-and-so. And again, that's all okay. That is part of the art tradition. And then there comes that time when you need to separate, though. And that's what I'm talking about here is, you know, being honest about that and, and saying, I think my work has looked like so-and-so's for long enough now, and I'm ready to find my own way. So that is pretty much the approach of if you're feeling uncomfortable about your own work. <laughs> Yeah, I think that it's very important to differentiate your own work from other artists, um, especially if you plan on selling your work. 
Um, I think that uh, it's it's actually it's very very damaging to an artist to to be viewed as producing something uh, that's a, a copy or a knockoff of another artist. Um, and I can I can speak from my own experience and from things that I've kind of witnessed recently uh, in Wisconsin. Um, for example, this is not really art stuff, um, but it. it has something to do with this topic um there's a, a brewery in milwaukee called mob craft and they produced a uh a, actually a glazed donut beer and they kind of do like that sounds so delicious ross you <laughs> <laughs> <Ew. laughs> and and I, I you know honestly like i i i'm not exactly objective about this uh because i i really love that brewery and the owner of that brewery henry has been very good to me personally and i should also note that i haven't spoken with him about any of this but uh there's a, a chain of gas stations in wisconsin that uh, has recently launched their own glazed donut beer and it's being produced by another brewery that isn't Mobcraft, and it's kind of I don't know, tainted my my uh, feeling about, in particularly the brewery that's producing it. Um, you know, I, I kind of expect gas stations to have like their own brand of whatever that they're selling. Um, but the uh, but the the brewery that's doing it for them that isn't Mobcraft, uh, I kind of think what are you guys doing? You know, and, and it's possible that, that the gas station approached Henry with this before. And he said, yeah, go for it. Or I'm not interested or, you know, whatever the situation is, I'm not privy to it, but just looking from the outside, um, yeah. you know, to me, it looks like there's this other brewery that's copying Mobcraft, And I'm like, what, what are you guys doing? <laughs> you know? In our terms, you don't respect that artist because they right. seem to be clearly copying what someone else has done right and i think it would be different if they were doing something you know if they were doing like a jelly donut you know with some fruit flavor or something in it (laughs) or you know something some other thing that they were doing i I i'm not saying that nobody should ever make another glazed donut beer um but add something to it you know do something a little bit different than what the last guy did otherwise it just looks like you're ripping them off and, uh, and that happens a lot in, in, in the beer world, in the craft beer world, where um, people steal each other's recipes or ideas or uh, things like that. And it always just looks a little bit shifty to me, you know? It, uh, it just doesn't sit right. It feels slimy. And, uh, um, you know, it, it has also happened to me in, in my industry um, I, I own Clearwater CBD. We produce CBD-infused beverages, mostly um, sparkling water. We do also have one uh, just like a flat water that do- isn't carbonated. Um, and uh, and I, that's not exactly a, a unique idea to do flavored water with carbonation and CBD in it. Um, and it's, it's not surprising to me that somebody else would produce a, a CBD-infused sparkling water. But there, there is another brewery that started producing a water that uh, has a label that is very, very close to mine. Um, and that's what really bugged me when, when it happened to me. It wasn't so much that they were copying what was in the can. What was in the can was pretty simple. Um, and, uh, and they weren't copying our flavors, and our flavors are pretty unique. And so I was thankful for that. But uh, for me, it was... You're in the same region as me. Uh, you're in the same niche. Uh, if you've done any kind of market research, you know who I am. 
Um, and you claim to have done market research to figure out, say, how much CBD to put into your can, which is was exactly the same as mine, um, and uh, what your price point should be, which was 99 cents below my price point on a case price. Um, and so th- there were things that, that indicated to me that this wasn't just a coincidence. Um, and when I, I took pictures of this label and showed it to people, um, universally people said, oh, you're coming out with a new flavor. <laughs> you know, they, they assumed it was my product, which it wasn't. Uh, it, and it was that close. And we all respect competition and competition exists in every field, you know, whether it's marketing a product or right. um in the art world and there's there's a sense of like you were saying building on an idea is kind of okay like with the beer idea but really actually when you look at something and say there are just too many similarities for this to be okay that that same feeling cuts across no matter what it is because if you're making a product it's personal to you we make our art right. it's very personal to us and there's this there's this kind of horrible thing people say about imitation as the best form of flattery and i think anybody that's been imitated uh would say uh no it feels bad <laughs> yeah. and when this happened to me i was i was very hurt by it initially all those feelings and as well as how you handled it i think I'd like to talk a little bit more about, you know, well, how to handle it or, or taking that step. I think that's very personal decision. Well, and, and I will say also that I exp- that I explored legal options. I, I talked to people kind of informally um, to lawyers and, and considered my options. And uh, based on the fact that they're in my geographical area, they're in my same niche, they were mass- matching my price point, like all of these data points... Uh, we felt very strongly that we could have won a case against them. Uh-huh. Uh, and the reason why we decided not to pursue legal action is because we felt like it was actually more damaging to them than it was to us to allow them to continue. And that's, and- yeah, that's very true. And I think, I think they, <laughs> they obviously got the message. Um, and, you know, the reason people get upset and defensive is, they kind of know they're wrong, you know, and and I, when it's pointed out to somebody that they're they're copying, there's a whole range of uh, responses that you can get. Legal action, especially in the art world, is probably not going to happen. I think in the more the business world, there that is a more reasonable route, I suppose. But it's always time consuming and expensive, and. I think for artists and anybody, you have to think about what is it that you really want to have happen. You want the the other party to stop doing what they're doing. And, uh, you know, there's very reasonable routes of contacting privately. It may or may not work, as my friend experienced. It really had no effect. There's a more public thing of calling them out on social media. But I think before you take any of those steps, and this is... Uh, I think in a, in the story that you told, it was very obvious. Sometimes, though, artists, because their work is very personal, <laughs> read into the work that other people are putting up there and saying, well, that sure looks a lot like mine because we're very sensitive to the way, to all the nuances of our own work. And other people may not see it. 
uh, with artwork. So sometimes when people complain uh, that someone else's work is copying theirs, uh, the other people can look at it and say, mm, I don't really see it. And if you're in that situation of feeling that somebody's copying you, I think it's important to get other people's opinion um, and to try to have some objectivity. How likely is it the other artist has seen your work? Um, if you're out there, if you're in social media, if you're in galleries and things, yes, it is quite likely. Um but what are the actual similarities? Getting some feedback on that. Could it be coincidence? In which case, the artist themselves might not be aware of it. And so approaching it somewhat gently, um, considering whether the other artist that you're upset with is producing this work over time, or is it some phase? Artists often kind of intersect because... In some sense, we're dealing with ideas that are sort of in the zeitgeist. You know, they're out there, and we're all pulling from our own realities, but there are intersections. And so sometimes somebody's work will look quite a bit like yours for a short time, and then they move on and just kind of give it a little time to see if that's what's happening or not. Um, and then, yeah, it's like... Um, <laughs> I guess I guess your choices are basically if you're not pursuing legal action, how public do you want to be with making accusations? How much can you just sort of accept and say, hey, usually the knockoff is not as good. I mean, usually if somebody's copying you and you put those two works side by side, anybody would say, well, this knockoff is inferior. Um, and so how threatening is that really? If you start with a gentle approach, you know, sometimes you're going to get somewhere, whether it's humor or just saying, um, you know, approaching like, hey, this could possibly be coincidence, but I have to say, you know, <laughs> um, there's a lot of similarity going on here. Can we talk about it? Um, you know, like, yes, it gives somebody the opportunity to reconsider their own position, Um rather than coming at them with a lot of anger and upsetness, which the anger is understandable. I was thinking about how how much it is. it feels like theft to the person who is being um, copied. And, you know, getting back to the idea, like, could this possibly be viewed as some sort of flattery? I thought, well, if, if someone breaks into your house and steals your computer or something, you don't feel especially flattered by that. <laughs> like, oh, they really liked my Mac. So, you know, that's kind of cool. <laughs> it's just, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. It is, it feels like a violation. And coping with your own feelings about that before you actually make a move on it is the challenge, I suppose. Um, letting it sit for a while, letting it, you know, talk to people about it and try to stay as calm as possible may produce results and it may not. <laughs> so, Right. Well, in my case, when I found out about what was happening, I was actually on vacation. I was uh, away from my yeah, I remember that for, on a trip with my fiance. <laughs> and Poor Kara. There, I had no choice but to yeah. I was a little bit miserable uh, for a couple days there, but um, I'm sure to be around. But uh, 
Um, you know, it forced me to to take a deep breath and calm down and and be able to see the comedic side of what was happening before I came back and dealt with it. And it still kind of ended up blowing up and being a thing, but it pushes buttons. It pushes all our buttons, no matter what we're doing that somebody else is taking. It pushes our buttons about this is personal. We worked hard to develop this stuff. And whatever it is, you have put so much effort into it. And for somebody to simply say, oh, I like the look of that and take it. It's just right. It's not right. Um, and. You know, I don't know. I suppose we should try to wrap it up and just say, bottom line, um, I feel like the bottom line for the copying issue is you can't control what other people do, but you can control your response to it. And if it's not working externally, you have to deal with it internally. Um, And getting back to the more positive aspects of influence, these are ways in which we learn and we grow and we educate ourselves and everything moves forward in one big conversation and we help each other that way. And I think right. it's it's an aspect of being an artist to embrace and not be um, embarrassed about it or afraid to say who influences you uh, over time, but also to be very aware of, of how you're using that long tradition of influence and being very honest about it. And I think that we also have to kind of trust people who are who are in our industry and and who are our customers to see the difference between your work and uh, a ripoff. And people have a natural aversion to what they view as a, a ripoff or a knockoff. And we need to trust people to make that that choice um, and uh, and and choose our work over something that somebody's doing that is kind of a, a, a copy. So do you have any other thoughts to wrap up this episode? Um, yeah, good thoughts, Ross. And um, I think um, we can honor both sides of this spectrum and, and how we deal with it. We have our influences that are part of our work as artists, and there are situations where we have to handle uh, either we feel we're being overly influenced by someone or someone is overly influenced by us and recognize it's part of our, our practice. Well, that about wraps up this episode of The Messy Studio. You can find The Messy Studio on Facebook as well as public profiles for both Rebecca Kroll and myself, Ross Tickner. Please make sure to check out squeegeepress.com as well as www.rebeccacroll.com and sign up for the email list to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. Please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating and a review. Remember to share the show with friends and family and anyone who you think will enjoy it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with more art and entertainment. In the meantime, embrace your creative space. Messy or otherwise. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.